Sometimes when I'm researching the story of London, I reread the books I've looked at countless times before, and gaze at source materials I have encountered previously, and something leaps out that I've never noticed before. Something that makes me blink and read it again and then blink again and go, seriously? This episode is about one of those moments. I don't think I'm the first person to ever write about this, but I've not been able to find online or in any book so far anybody else who's written about this specific incident. So if somebody has and you're aware of that, please do let me know. Because this episode is all about one of those moments that made me stop dead and go, wow. It's about a six-week war that took place along the River Thames over a thousand years ago. It admits the rain and cold winds of the winter of the year 1009. Two fleets engaged in a protracted series of raids and attacks against one another their wooden ships slicing through the dark, choppy waters of the river, their crews filled with bloody intent. On the one side, the most ferocious Vikings in Europe, the Joms Vikings, the supposed elite of the Scandinavian forces. And on the other side, the residents of London, its butchers and its tanners, its carpenters and its traders. And there, without fanfare and without fuss, the Vikings had their asses handed to them on a plate. This remarkable story, this incredible event, is easily overlooked in the chaos of what went before and what was to come after. Hi, my name is Saul. And I'd like to welcome you to chapter 27 of the story of London, which I'd originally wanted to call the Dark Times, but now I've repurposed to tell the story of this remarkable event. This is the War of the Thames. To understand how this moment happened, we need to go back six years previously, to the year 1003. England is in a state of chaos. London gazes out from behind its walls at a country adrift in a miasma of conflict and war. The nation had just had a bunch of Viking raiders devastate the West Country, and a whole bunch of mercenaries from Norway who had been working for England had jumped ship and betrayed England to join them. In response to this, the story goes, the king, Ethelred, had ordered the killing of the remaining Norwegian mercenaries, an event that is remembered today as the St. Bryce's Day Massacre. And no sooner had the people come to terms with that than King Sven Forkbeard, the mercurial ruler of Denmark, had returned to the English shores with yet another huge Viking raiding force. Now, supposedly, according to the traditional narrative, he was doing this to avenge a whole bunch of defenceless Danes who had just been murdered, right? And at least one or two sources claim his sister had also been killed in the St. Bryce's Day Massacre. But as I discussed last chapter, 
I think you have to hold the provenance of such claims at arm's length. In the end, the truth of the matter didn't trump the politics of it. So if King Ethelred of England had just ordered the murder of a bunch of poor defenceless Danes, or if he'd just executed a bunch of highly trained Norwegian mercenaries of dubious loyalty, it really didn't matter to King Sven Forkbeard. In fact, you could argue that even if there wasn't a massacre, Sven Forkbeard would have had a reason to return anyway. After all, he had just finished a bloody five-year campaign against the late Olaf Tryggvason, one which England may well have sponsored. And those Viking mercenaries who'd just been killed, they'd been men King Sven Forkbeard had employed and had taken to England, and then they decided to stay and work for the English. Question, why would he be bothered to avenge them? Wouldn't he be more likely to seek revenge for them being there in the first place? It's also worth saying that King Æthelred had done more than just pay Olaf Tryggvason. He also confirmed him as a Christian, and apparently, according to at least one historian I've read, this royal confirmation had triggered Olaf's crusading frenzy throughout Sven's territory, which only ended with Olaf's death. Either way, for several years, Æthelred's divide-and-conquer plan had worked, but with Sven back in control of Norway, the Scandinavian overlord was free to visit England's shores, and he had a bevy of reasons to come calling, very few of which could have had anything to do with the supposed genocide, which may or may not have happened. Regardless, Sven was back to raid England. This time he seems to have avoided London. Who could blame him? The city had shown it was tough enough to resist him and had inflicted upon him one of his few genuine big military defeats. No, this time he began his raid as far away from London as he possibly could. The king and his men sacked the city of Exeter in the year 1003. After that city was looted and destroyed, a regional army gathered to stop Sven's destruction, and it was led by none other than Ilderman Ilfric of Hampshire. Oh, Londoners knew that guy all too well. He was the man who had chickened out and sailed away and ruined the fleet attack London had helped organise back in 992. And here we are, just over a decade later, and Ilfric of Hampshire was back in royal favour and was leading an army. Yeah, the Londoners would probably have heard the news and not been surprised of what happened afterwards, because in the words of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, Ilfric of Hampshire was, quote, up to his old tricks, unquote. Apparently, as that English army marched to meet the Danish king in battle, Ilfric, quote, pretended to vomit, saying he was ill, unquote. <sighs> the English army stopped when their leader started being poorly, and Sven exploited this by just burning down the village of Wilton. There was no battle. The Danes just ignored the English forces, and by all accounts, the English army was unwilling to attack without someone to lead them. The Danes, for their part, carried on, looking to avoid losing men in any pitched battles with the English. They were too busy focusing on the much safer policy of raiding and burning, 
So they just carried on raiding and burning and avoiding the English feud. And the feud, for its part, was unwilling to engage the Danes in battle, as no nobles seemed to be willing to lead them. This rather pathetic cat-and-mouse game carried on as the King of Denmark and his men just had all the fun, it seemed. By 1004, after having caused havoc in the south, Sven took his fleet around the coast and continued to avoid London and sacked Norwich. This event, however, did lead to a local leader willing to stand up and fight, a man named Ulf Kettle the Bold. He fought back very intelligently. The first move he did was to try and destroy the Viking ships, trapping the Danes in England. When that failed, Ulf Kettle's East Anglian army managed to block Sven's men from returning to the shoreline. This was a worrying development for the Danes. The two forces finally collided in a fierce battle that seems to have been a success for the English. Despite the deaths of many of the East Anglian nobles, no more raiding or pillaging is recorded in the year 1004, and by 1005, Sven Forkbeard was leaving. But not because of any battle, however. This was due to a much, much darker reason. England was gripped by a famine. There was some kind of crop failure going on that year. People were literally starving to death, it seemed. There was apparently not even enough food to be raided to feed the Danish army. Sven left, and England had survived yet another round of Viking attacks. But that wasn't the end of their troubles. With England now seemingly weakened by famine and unable to even defend itself, it now suffered an entirely new attack from a foe seemingly out of nowhere. Scotland got in on the act and began raiding Northumbria. This was many miles away from London, and as such, the Londoners may not have cared too much. In fact, the only bit of news about this Scottish attack that was going to matter to them was simply that the Scots had been routed by an English force led by a man called Uhtred, and since the elderman of York, a man called Elfham, had failed to deal with the Scots, King Ethelred decided to make an example of him. This is the same Ethelred who only a few years earlier had ordered the killing of a whole bunch of Norwegians he suspected of treason, a rather angry and vicious version of Ethelred. And he made his point in the most ruthless way possible. Elfham of York was executed and his two sons were blinded. But in this new regime, men could be rewarded just as quickly as they were being punished. Uhtred was now made the new elderman of the region, and another name enters the pages of English history right about now. One of the most infamous figures in the story, a man called Idric Streona. Streona was supposedly a low-born hatchet man who killed Elfheim and blinded his sons for his king, and began to rise very quickly in the ranks of the English court for his willingness to do the king's dirty work for him. By the end of the year 1006, however, guess what? Yes, the Vikings were back. Not some huge army led by any great leader, thankfully. Just a raiding force looking to see if post-famine England had anything worth stealing. They returned by midsummer of 1006, and. King Aethelred ordered out, quote, all the levies from Wessex and Mercia, unquote, to meet them in battle. Uh, apparently, the English armies did pursue the Vikings all autumn, but just seemed to fail to meet them in battle. 
The presence of both foreign and native armies caused extreme hardship for the English, with the Chronicle noting that, quote, neither the home levies nor the invading host did them any good, unquote. After an entire season where the two armies managed to avoid each other, the English levies were finally dismissed to go back home as the term of service in the fjord had ended. The Vikings had made their winter camp in the Isle of Wight, but soon ventured, quote, more than 50 miles inland, unquote, and destroyed Wallingford. The Chronicle then finally records a battle between the Vikings and local force from East Kennet, but the English were defeated. So people were now fighting, the example of what just happened in Northumbria had motivated them, but it wasn't producing any good results, and after all the military forces had failed, the king made peace with the invaders, sending him tribute and provisions. But Æthelred wanted to clearly return to the more aggressive stance he had taken at the turn of the century, and over the year of 1007, he set to work. That last tribute payment had bought him some free time. The year 1007 was the first in a while where there's no recorded attacks by any Vikings. The king got busy, and he returned to a policy that appeared to be the one thing London cared about the most. He returned to the idea of building up English sea power. The entry in the Chronicle for that year reads, quote, this year bade the king that men should speedily build ships all over England. That is, a man possessed of 310 hides to provide a galley or skiff, and a man possessed of eight hides only to find a helmet and breastplate." Unquote. Now long-term listeners may recognize this kind of organization. Back in chapter 21, I described how this was the system I believe Dunstan, the former Bishop of London and then ultimately Archbishop of Canterbury, had initiated across England, the ship souk. This was the system Dunstan had brought in to be done by the monasteries who he had reformed under his auspices, and it had provided a working fleet of between 30 and 60 ships for King Edgar the Peaceable. It had been this fleet that had protected England during his reign, this fleet that had intimidated the Vikings of the Irish Sea into not attacking England. It was this system that had replaced the ad hoc method of running a fleet King Æthelstan had used, where we think in order to pay for it, the fleet had to engage in piracy. The Shipsoak, the precursor to what would be called the Shipsfjord, was England's first attempt to organise a standing fleet with an infrastructure to pay for it. And while in the aftermath of Edgar's death, as we covered previously, it had been allowed to fall to the side, and while there had been a brief attempt at revival by Aethelred back in the 990s, here now it was revived totally and nationally to produce a staggeringly large fleet. Sometime later in the 11th century, a foreign invader would compile a list of the resources of England, a record that was supposed to last from then until Doomsday. This Doomsday book estimated that the total revenue of England, as judged in the measurement of hides, was between 70 to 80,000 hides. In the years 1007 and 1008, King Æthelred had ordered a ship cost around 310 hides. 
This is the money for a ship and an armoured crew of about 37 men per ship. If we assume that the whole of England was involved, as the chronicle suggests, one historian has suggested that this would have given the English a working fleet of between 230 and 270 ships. That's a vast armada. This would have given the English state the largest fleet in Europe at the time. Of course, we have to assume that even if the ship soak was initiated across the whole of England, it would not have been this perfectly well-oiled machine. So let's assume, based on the level of incompetence and graft we see from the nobles surrounding the king at this time, England built half that number. So between 115 and 145 ships, that's still a huge figure. And we know, because of what's just about to happen, that certainly England had over 100 ships. By the year 1009, this fleet was ready, and the king travelled to London to see it off, with the chronicle marvelling that it was more massive than any fleet, quote, in the reign of any king, unquote. This fleet had the potential to be a game-changer, a force strong enough to drive off any and all Viking raids in the years ahead. And then... As always, everything went very wrong. So the story goes that this massive fleet was asked to assemble off the coast of Kent, and away it sailed. And as it was all big and important, and as it was this massive number of very impressive ships, and the king was with it feeling all proud, so along with him came all the great and good of England, who just wanted to be part of this. And so, as far as we can tell, as the massive fleet assembled off the east coast of Kent, anchoring in the bay somewhere between modern Sandwich and the port of Ramsgate, the nobles, unfortunately, started infighting between themselves, as they're prone to do. Again, this is a generation of nobles who did not see themselves as warrior defenders of the land. They saw themselves as men trying to jostle each other for power and prestige. As such, even here, with the mightiest fleet ever assembled in English history, they were all up in their reindeer games, and one rivalry caused an utter disaster. The culprit seems to be Edric Streona. He by now had been elevated to the mighty title of Ealderman of Mercia. He was on the rise, and he was elevating his family along with him, including his younger brother, a man called Brithic. Now, Brithic supposedly accused a noble from Sussex called Wolfnoth Killed of treason. The king, sat with his new majestic fleet, believed these accusations, and according to the chronicle, sent Wolfnoth into exile. But Wolfnoth did not take this lying down, and, quote, enticed the navy till he had with him twenty ships with which he plundered everywhere by the south coast and wrought every kind of mischief." Unquote. So yeah, the king allowed internal politics, caused one of his nobles to be sent into exile, and he responded by doing an English impression of a Viking raid along the south coast of Kent and Sussex. 20 ships, a 35 men per ship, that's 700 men pillaging and raiding the south coast of their own country. 
but it gets worse. The records state that, quote, When it was told the Navy that they might easily seize him if they would look about them, then took Brithick with him 80 ships and thought that he should acquire for himself much reputation by getting Wolfmoth into his hands, alive or dead, unquote. So now, stray on his brother, a man with no naval reputation whatsoever, was leading a flotilla of 80 ships to chase down Wolfsnot's 20 ships. <laughs> I mean, what's the worst that can happen? <sighs> Quote, But whilst they were proceeding thitherward, there came such a wind against them, as no man remembered before, which beat and tossed the ships and drove them aground, whereupon Wolfnoth soon came and burned them." Unquote. The fleet of England, this new navy of the king, had just lost 100 ships due to internal politics. Okay, you could say the storm was just bad luck, but seriously, once again a large English fleet had been assembled to change the nature of the war against the Vikings, and once again the actions of a bunch of nobles had caused it to utterly fail before the battle or any battle had even taken place. This was the third time. You know, you had Ildemann Elfric of Hampshire sailing away the night before a battle. You had the nobles who had forced the English fleet to remain docked so as to avoid fighting in the Medway. And now you had Brithick sailing 80 ships into a storm. The biggest danger to the English fleet wasn't the Vikings, you know? Oh, and that Wolfnoth killed, I mentioned, who was driven into exile and then went on a pirate raid, you know? He's only important to this story for one reason. See, the only reason I'm mentioning him, really, is in a few years' time, his son's going to turn up. A man called Godwin. And his son was a man called Harold Godwinson, the future king of England who was going to lose the Battle of Hastings. But we'll get to their stories when they arrive. Now, the response to this debacle, this destruction of 100 ships, was brutal. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says, quote, When this was known to the remaining ships where the king was, how the others fared, it was then as if all were lost. The king went home with the aldermen and the nobility, and thus lightly did they forsake the ships, unquote. <sighs> yep, it is here that this section of the story of London, I feel, manifests itself. I said, this entire period I'm calling the Kingdom of London, because it demonstrates an era where in the face of vacillation, ineptitude and incompetence, London appeared to take matters into their own hands, and this, for me is one of those moments. So while the nobles of the king would consider all was lost, and incompetent landlubbers like Brithick had utterly dashed the strength of the fleet, London simply seems to refuse to accept this. While the Chronicle declared that the entire enterprise had been a total failure, and the nobles, quote, lightly did they suffer the labour of all the people to be in vain. Nor was the terror lessened as all England hoped, unquote. London seems to have utterly refused to accept this. Because as the records say, after the nobles had left, 
leaving the remains of the fleet off the coast of Sandwich, quote, the men that were in them rowed them back to London, unquote. Now, please note, in my narrative, the story of London, this moving the ships back to London fits a pattern that manifests itself in the way I explain things. This was London going, oh, for God's sake, fine, we'll take them. We know what we're going to do with them. However, some historians would argue slightly differently. The king may have ordered London to take the fleet. As one suggests, quote, stationing the remaining ships in London was a strategic move, not a despondent show of defeat, unquote. And it may have been the king acknowledging London's long-standing expertise in this area. Either way, this move excluded the nobility of England. London was the king's land. He was its only noble. The Bishop of London was the only person of standing who lived within the city or who had land within the city. So maybe he did order London to take it. But most importantly, this move removed the remaining ships away from the jurisdiction of any of the English nobility. And so here in the year 1009, London now had the controls of the remainder of the English fleet. Now, if we assume there'd been about 140 or so ships, with at least 100 of them now being either pirates or burned on a beach somewhere, that would have left between 10 and 40 ships now based in London. And the timing of this was perfect, because with only a few weeks, a new Viking force arrived, and this was led by a figure who was to become legendary in both English and London history, a man called Thorkill the Tall. Now, Thorkill is one of those figures where, if I was to do a deep dive into him and his biography, would be here all episode. He was supposedly this giant of a man, and there is much made of his legend. There's also some debate, as a few historians believe, that there's been a large element of padding to his story as time has gone by. And rather than get into the full details of his biography, we just need to know a few basic things to tell our story. One, Thorkill was a formidable Viking leader. Two, he was the commander, or a joint commander, of a group of Scandinavians known as the Joms Vikings, a semi-legendary group of raiders. Basically, they were the professional Vikings of this era, the best that Scandinavia had to offer. And three, this group led by Thorkill went on a spectacular raid over the next four months. Soon after the start of August that year, so only weeks after the English fleet had vacated the area, the Yom's Vikings arrived in Sandwich and they raided it. Then they marched onto Canterbury, threatening there, uh, but then the locals gave them about £3,000 and a private Dane guild to leave them alone. Having made a profit, the Yom's Vikings agreed to move off and then they went on a tear and rampaged all across Sussex and then all across Hampshire, and then all across Berkshire, until eventually they came to the Isle of Wight. Here they managed to avoid the king's armies, and soon after the 11th of November, quote, they went back again to Kent, and chose their winter quarters on the Thames, unquote. 
Now, we don't know exactly where Thorkill and his men were based, but we do know that their fleet was active on the river, effectively blockading London. And we have some clues, as the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle describes the Yom's Vikings, quote, obtaining their provisions from Essex and from the shires that were next on both sides of the Thames, unquote. So that suggests they could either be based on the north side of the river, so that could be somewhere used by previous Viking raiders like Haston, like, you know, Benfleet or Shubury, or on the south side of the river, which I think suggests they could have been based on the Isle of Sheppey. Either way, the Yom's Vikings were blockading and controlling the mouth of the Thames. They were effectively cutting London off from the world. But this was not the city who had cowered before the raiders of Halfton Whiteshirt. This was the London who had seen off the forces of Haston, the city who had beaten off the massive army of Sven Forkbeard. And this was the London that now had its own fleet. The Oms Vikings and Thorkill want to fight? London was going to give it to them. What now followed was a six-week campaign of naval warfare on the River Thames. On the one side, the most feared Vikings in Europe. On the other, London, the London Sin and their fleet. This was their river, and they would be damned if the Vikings were going to do what Haston had done in the past. London's citizens manned their ships and sailed downriver straight at the Vikings. Alas, we do not have details of what sounds like a six-week bloody campaign that took place that winter. But the Chronicle says specifically of the Vikings under Thorkill, quote, And oft they fought against the city of London, but glory be to God that it yet standeth firm, and they ever there met with ill fare, unquote. This for me is describing a campaign that sees Sorkil and his men be on the losing side of the fighting. Now they may have tried to attack London itself, hence the claim that it standeth firm. But this fighting was of high intensity, as it says, oft they fought. And I don't think he had enough men to besiege London. What we do know, however, is that Thorkill and his army, quote, ever there met ill fare, unquote. The toughest Vikings in Europe had clearly gotten into a fight with London, and London seems to have kicked their ass. In fact, I believe what it says next proves that. We know the Yom Viking ships were damaged in that campaign, so damaged and in such numbers that they were out of action and would not be used again until the following spring after the Vikings had taken time to repair their own ships. We do not know if London ships were also damaged, but we must assume they were. But it is clear that London held the advantage after that six-week war. We know they appear to have driven the Yom's Vikings back to their base and stopped them from being able to use the river to attack. And how do we know this? Well, the Chronicle simply describes Thorkill having to recalibrate his entire campaign. Thorkill had just spent six weeks with his force being savaged for no profit and leaving his ships damaged. He needed a quick victory. So what did he do? 
he left the damaged ships where they were and sometime after December 22nd ordered his men to avoid London altogether and march overland and, quote, took they an excursion up through Chilton and so to Oxford, which city they burned, unquote. So they reached Oxford and had themselves a grand time avoiding London. But the Londoners' blood was up. The city seemed to have the measure of this Thorkild at all, and they knew he was now operating away from his base downriver. It appeared that they now swung their fleet and their forces around to travel upriver and move to trap him at Oxford. It was a race against time. For Thorkild, he had to get back to Kent, and that meant the Yom's Vikings had to cross the Thames to get to the south bank of it so they could overland it back to their base. The forces of London were hoping to intercept them. And as that cold December winds blew, the Londoners marched and sailed up the Thames looking to close the trap upon the Yom's Vikings. But Thorkill, quote, being forewarned that there was an army gathered against them at London, they went over at Staines, unquote. Yep, Thorkill and the Orms Vikings realised they were about to be trapped and managed to recross the Thames at Staines and moved away from the river and the London fleet. The river was effectively lava to Thorkill's men. They carried what booty they could from Oxford and retreated back to Kent, running as fast as their little Yom's Viking legs could carry them, it appears. Any way you look at this, this campaign, during November and December of the year 1009, saw the city of London literally chase down and beat the living daylights out of the semi-mythical Yom's Vikings. We do not know London's losses, and we must assume London did lose men to death and injury. And for all we know, it could have been a really close-run thing. But it is clear, from the point of view of the Vikings... They'd lost this one. Think about it. The Yom's Vikings had two things in their advantage. One, they were formidable warriors. And two, they were manoeuvrable because they had ships. Yet here, we see the Chronicle says that this campaign meant that the Yom's Vikings were crippled. Their attack upon Oxford had kept them busy. Quote, thus they were in motion all the winter. And in the spring appeared again in Kent and repaired their ships, unquote. Like Sven Forkbeard had discovered a dozen years earlier, London, I believe, had proven it could face down and fight off whatever the Vikings could throw at them. London, I honestly believe, confounded Thorkill at all, and I think it's fair to say, based on what happened later, this had a profound effect upon him and some of his men. Be that as it may, the rest of the country was certainly not as resistant as London was and the Yom's Vikings had a lot of other possible targets to choose from. But as the winter of the year 1010 emerged into spring, what no one could have known was that Thorkill the Tall was to find his fate inextricably linked to that of the city of London in the years ahead. And events were set into motion that was to cause one of the most famous incidents in the story of London. Mm -hmm.
that's it for this week's episode i've got a lot coming up for regular listeners as next week we examine events that are blamed for the origins of that nursery rhyme plus the story of london is about to go utterly insane no seriously there's a lot about to happen and london is about to find itself in the front line of most of it i think it gets attacked about five times over the next few years added to that i've got a special two-part episode exploring what was happening in the city during all of this and beyond how was life in london changing how it was turning from a city in england to become the city of england but that comes in the next few weeks i'm also going to be trying to get back to a regular wednesday uploading schedule i do apologize for occasionally being a day or so late here and there due to real life issues but i'm excited and looking forward to carrying on with the podcast and sharing it with you wonderful listeners I genuinely would like to thank everyone who sent me any feedback. And if you have any questions or queries regarding the story of London or any of the events I describe, please do ask. As always, there'll be a free copy of the rough version of this script linked to in the description of this episode. And it's hosted on Imgur, so if you have any questions, feel free to use Imgur to ask away. And yes, enough of me gushing. I hope you're all well. And I'll be back next week for another chapter in the story of London.